0: Hi, I'm Meredith.
1: And I'm Kristen.
0: And this is The Writer's Story. Um, it's January. Yeah. We're still holding on to January. Um, <laughs>
1: you yeah. know, we're... Resolution slipping away already that, on my nice. part.
0: You know, the gym was remarkably quiet today. Yeah. And I thought, is it February? Did I miss the memo? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, um, there was a couple couple, um, anniversaries I just wanted to bring up. Um, we did not record in December. We decided we were much too busy, I don't know, making Christmas cookies. I don't know, what we do in December? Um, and, um, but, so it is our only our 12th podcast, but it is our one-year anniversary. Woohoo! So last year, I guess it was our New Year's resolution to start a podcast. I don't, I don't, re- <laughs> I don't remember how that all went. I can't remember. But I don't. I, I, I don't, don't remember. remember. We'll have to listen to the first podcast
1: to find out. Um, <laughs> but uh, do you make New Year's resolutions? I don't, honestly. I, um, I think sometimes they sound like such a good idea, but... I think I fear I will just grossly disappoint myself right yeah. out of the gate. Yeah. I think there's some of that for me. Um, but I do appreciate the sensibility of a new year, the new thing. I, do, I, I so there's, a, there's a sort of cleaning house that maybe happens a little bit inside of me when I think about just a new start.
0: I, I feel like we don't have enough ritual in our life. Yeah, and um, and so I like uh, I like the ritual of the one year to the next, and I try to reflect on the past year and think about what I what I would like to do going forward to create some goals for myself. But I don't think it's like I don't think it's the, the those stereotypical things of like lose five pounds or whatever those things are that are supposed to people all encourage you to think about. But uh, one um, sort of marking. Uh, or a ritual that I cannot take credit for, it is my husband's, is on New Year's Eve, he has a fire, Mm. and he writes down on slips of paper, recycled of course, um, all the things that he would like to have go away. Or, yeah. And a lot of that is feelings mm-hmm, or or, mm-hmm. or clinging to some kind of resentment about stuff, yeah. and then burning them one by one as a sort of way to sort of say, take it back, world, I'm not
1: going to... I think that's great.
0: Uh, and I think that kind of stuff can be quite useful. So, so for him, it's a letting go. Other people, I think, it's a, oh, this is the year I'll... I don't
1: know, stop eating McDonald's for every meal. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what,
0: their, what the goals are. Well,
1: I one year copied a dear friend's um, technique, and I would like to do it again. I just have been too lazy to get around to it, I guess. But she does a visual on a single piece of paper, kind of like a little mini poster of things that she wants to prioritize. So does she do pictures or draw? Pictures and text. So like little, and it can be, and what I did when I copied her, hers are really beautiful, but I'd made like little stick figures of people in my family and the dogs remembering some of the things that I want always to prioritize, but then also things in text like that are already maybe on the calendar that are work-related or mm-hmm. recreation-related or... Um, things—a a pithy aphorism that I want to guide me in the year—and it's a really, that, yeah, that I did it. Very interesting. It's it's a really neat idea, and I had a lot of fun with it that one year. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I was gonna say, uh, I know in our in our
0: sort of uh, in our uh, one of our local writing groups, when we met, I had them go through an exercise that I thought was very useful for me, which is like, where do you see yourself? in five years and 10 years, um, and the, in the, and where would you like to be? And the, the reason for it, um, which was explained to me is that until you sort of articulate
2: mm-hmm. where you
0: want to go, you are not going to get there. Yeah. So, yeah. so the act of saying, I'm going to reclaim this space for myself, or I'm going to yeah. claim this goal for myself makes you start working towards it, like sort of taking some more responsibility for it. Yeah. Um, I think I might have done a vision board as well.
1: Yeah. Well I remember. So I was there yeah. when we did this exercise and one of the things It was terrible loved,
0: for me during this session, <laughs> by the way. But it's
1: but it is a good exercise. Um, it's a good question to pose to oneself, but one of the answers I loved so much was from one of the older women, and it was the 10 years, you know, where do you see yourself not, 10 years out And she said something like, here, my goal is like still to be here.
0: And it, so, of course, it was different. So when I did it yes. in my 20s or whatever I was, yeah, I had a variety of goals, and, um, and then I kept it in, I think in a journal, and when I went back to it, every single thing had happened. Yeah. And so that was very really empowering for me because at the time it was things like own a home, which you just thought, when is this ever going to happen for me, right? I'm yeah, 27. Yeah, but you had your
1: eye But on that I had book. my eye on that mm-hmm. and,
0: and having a child and all the sort of things that I thought, this is what I want for my life. Yeah. And I went ahead and did those things. And I think it included, um, you know, publishing a book. Yeah. And, and so, so it was work, mm-hmm. personal life, Different yeah. stuff, and I think I think just I think you're right though. But you're you're trying out something kind of interesting, which is about prioritize, like almost having priorities for yourself to yeah. sort of say, you know what, this year, I'm gonna make sure that I'm, you know, heal this relationship or stay in touch with someone
1: or yeah, just recognizing the things that you know you want to be about, but that can also include you know finishing this manuscript. Right. So when it comes to stuff like publishing, goals around writing I think are um, a little bit tricky because for a couple of reasons. One is making sure to distinguish what you have control of and what you don't have control right. of.
0: Right. I want a huge publishing contract yes. for several
1: million dollars. Exactly. Uh, is a goal. Am Maybe I going to be goal, disappointed but... next January? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe not. Tell it me but... straight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but there will be champagne if you uh... get that. <laughs>
1: That's right
0: now as you know yes exactly but I think you about... you're, th- and you're so right about that and um, I, I've also learned a lot of forgiveness mm. which is yeah. to say I have I have rigorous goals for myself. But if you for health reasons, if there's a an issue with your family, if yeah. there's anything else that you need to reprioritize and your writing goal gets squashed in that process. Just mm-hmm. not say to yourself, "Oh well, the writing is done," but just say, "Oh, let's reconfigure this goal." Yes. Clearly, yeah. the first two weeks of January were a wash. Yeah. So, what's gonna what what will February bring me? What what would I like to
1: have February look like? Like yes. to be
0: open-minded.
1: You know, it makes me think about something that pops into my brain every so often, related to my my childhood, especially love of games, like board games. And I think of it as sort of my game brain, that uh, you have to have a strategy to win a game, right? A board game. You have certain resources at the outset of the game, and you know what your goal is uh, to, to win that game. and you, And then, so you have to figure out how you can use the resources you have to get to the goal that you have set winning this game. So... But it's not that simple either. You have to be constantly recalculating because your resources change and your opponent's strategy is also part of what informs your game. Now that's, again, like a board game, but a lot of it actually applies to some of life. It's, it's recognizing where are, am I putting my resources, my energy into the kinds of things that are right for the goals that I have.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, I'm not very good at that <laughs> with general life stuff, but I, if I think about it in terms of that kind of game brain, it sort of helps me recalibrate sometimes. Well, sometimes there's just so much emotional
0: baggage with some of our goals Yeah, it's sometimes a little hard to just find the goal in there. Yes. You yep. know what I mean? You just get kind of weighted down with... Um, Right. I mean, you know, it's, it. I find, for instance, I find writer Twitter very helpful for me because yeah. you'll uh, be reading and it's, and it's a writer that you admire saying, you know, oh, today I hate my manuscript and I'm the worst writer ever and tomorrow uh, and this is amazing. And you have that sort of that going back and forth. And so I think you can talk yourself out of goals on some days like, you know what, I should just give up. Yeah. This book is terrible. Oh, wait. A new shiny idea, I'm gonna go write that. You know what I mean? Or whatever. And so I think I think understanding, um, sort of saying, Okay, what what's the goal now? The goal is to finish this draft. Yeah. Then evaluate whether I'm a terrible writer and I should quit or (laughs) Yeah or whatever. You know, to sort of uh Yeah keep
1: going. Yeah. But you bring up a point that I think uh, is worth always reminding ourselves, thats that is that, that it is just really hard, and it is hard for everyone.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but there are also those moments of grace and joy and exuberance and um, confidence. So recognizing that those feelings are all tumbling around in the writer's life, I, as, and that you're not alone in having those, you know, tons of self-doubt or self, um, well, questioning, of course, whether it's worth your time and energy to do the thing you're doing, I think is also a common um, challenge for writers, especially without um a contract in hand or right representation. And you
0: can sort of say to yourself, Well I'm not getting paid for this. Is this really worth it? I'm taking time away from my family and from all this other things that I and or I or paid work.
1: Yep, yep. And that's where again it is I think good to look at realistically, look at the whole right what are the priorities that I wanna have. But yeah, but Understanding that sometimes you're going to feel really crappy about your writing, right? As <laughs> a writer, and
0: that's okay. Yes, and that's okay. That yeah. happens to everybody. Yeah,
1: and on writer Twitter, you hear other people saying that, and that can be kind of like a relief.
0: Well, and also just knowing what your goals are. So I, um, I said yes to, to far too many. Uh, festival of the book panels yay, I get to read lots of books, meet lots of authors oh boo that's kind of kind of each struggling you know with writing and and keeping all these balls in the air. but um, I was asked to teach and I thought about it and had a conversation with my husband and he said, why would you even do that? <laughs> and I thought, uh, good question um, <laughs> And I really enjoy teaching but he was right if what I just said of what my goal is for the next six yes. months, hello check in (laughs) that's not on your goal list so so I said maybe in the fall yeah see how things go in the spring so that was that was a good thing um I'm excited uh my friend Irene is is coming we're actually going to be in the same room with her we normally will call in so that'll be um, it's always fun to actually get to see the person and um, we're going to talk to her about who knows poetry new year Anything that she would bring, so um, I'm really excited to welcome her.
1: Yeah, me too. And as a physician poet, um, I'm excited to hear how those those um, life endeavors work together for her. Yeah,
0: and and to find out, uh, you know, what's on, you know, we can I'll ask her. It'll be our first question. Do you do New Year's resolutions? <laughs> no judgment zone. That's right. That's right. And why exactly? All right, well, uh, I think she's about to arrive, so we'll turn back on when she's here. Sounds great. All right, well, we're so excited to have Ren Matteau here, and her most recent book came out in 2019, Grand Marinage. Um, she is a pediatrician and a poet um, and lives here in Charlottesville, and just super excited to sort of talk to you a little bit more about your work, um, both both kinds of work, and also um, sort of what inspires you with your, work, your, your poetry. And our first question, as always, how did you become a writer? What was that sort of path
2: for you? Well, thank you for having me. It's a huge honor to be here. And my path to becoming a writer started really before I can remember. Um, when I was a toddler, I used to tell my mom I had something to write. And she would have to, like, write it down for me. I would dictate to her my journal entries, which at the time were probably things like, today grandma and grandpa came over and we made cookies. (laughs) But I always had this um, instinct to tell stories. And my mom talks about how when we'd go run errands, I would narrate her life. And it was super annoying. And I would just follow her around the grocery store and say, she inspected the box of crackers to see if the ingredients were good enough for her family. And my mom would look at me and just be like, oh my god, stop. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) since I can remember I've always been interested in talking a lot and telling stories (laughs) and um when I was younger I used to write a lot of short stories and some longer stories that I called novels and as well as poetry and I just remember knowing from very early on that's what I wanted to do but I always had a sense that I wanted to do something else as well and I wasn't sure how to conceptualize of only writing all day and I felt like there were other things I wanted to do as well so I kind of had my little detour, not detour, but another path where I figured out that I wanted to become a physician and got really interested in global health and public health, but I was writing the whole time. And it wasn't until after I graduated from college and I spent a year in the Dominican Republic doing research when I started to think of myself as more, um, I guess, publicly more of a writer or as something, this being something I could do something professionally with. And before it had always just been for me And a way that I would make sense of the world. I journaled every single day for many, many years. And it was just how I processed my experiences. But when I was living abroad, I met a woman who had started a small press. And she said, if you want to be a writer, just call yourself a writer. There's no school you have to go to or thing you have to accomplish to get the credentials as a writer. Just write, just do your work and then put it out there. And that's what got me interested in publication and sharing my work. And I think made me start thinking about writing a little bit more as a public outward-facing exercise and not just as this internal thing. So that's my path.
1: <laughs> wow. Oh, Irene, it's so much fun to hear your story, and we're eager to talk about your work. But this, um, also interesting to find that permission to name the writer mm-hmm. in you, mm-hmm. when, my goodness, you had been a writer from, it sounds like, the time you <laughs> well, found language. Someone <laughs> a writer, right? Right, it,
0: and, and sometimes a writer isn't always very good about writing, but I think mm-hmm. that that's, if, if you set the bar like that, then anyone who wants to stand up and say, I'm a writer, mm-hmm. I think there's, there's no, there's no yeah. limits on that. The, the, it was with this organization, and um, there was two, org- two mystery organizations, and one would say um, unpublished and published authors, and they had different rules for them. They're very mm-hmm. rigid. And the other would call um, some writers pre-published Mm. And I always thought that oh, was a very sweet idea, which is a sort mm-hmm. of like, if we have to say, do you have a book under a book, whatever, perhaps, right. that's fine. But if you said pre-published, that just means it just hasn't happened yet. You know, yeah. and I yeah. think that's a really nice positive.
1: Yeah. Positive well, and it's amazing. also so remarkable to be such an accomplished writer as you are while balancing a job as a physician, I mean, just simply going, how did you do it in the course of medical school as well? And residency, holy smokes. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you. Um,
2: I think it's not really a choice for me um, because Mm. I spent so many years just organizing my thoughts around language. I mean, we all do that to some extent, but I think the process of writing, even just journaling, is really what helps me make sense of things. And I think I was kind of like therapizing myself for a long time. Um... And just helping myself figure out what certain emotions meant and giving language mm-hmm. for things that I didn't have before. So going through my medical training, it didn't feel like something separate or like an extracurricular or a choice. It felt like something I had to do. And I, I noticed that if I don't write for a few weeks, I start to feel weird. I'm like, hey, everything's kind of wonky up there. I got to figure yeah. out what's going on. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so um, I guess logistically, I mean, the same way anyone else does, I just prioritized it and made time for it. And, you know, when I was in residency, there were probably times some of my colleagues were at happy hour and I was home on my couch with my books and writing (laughs) because that's just what I wanted to do. Um, But I've been lucky to find really great writing community, both in medical school and then even more so in residency when I was living in Philadelphia. And Mm. I met some really amazing other poets, none of whom are medical people in the least, but really wonderful, accomplished, talented poets who live in Philly, which is a very poetry and literary heavy city. Um, And we would meet every couple of weeks at someone's house and just go over each other's work in sort of a workshop style format So just being able to find people like that and find mentors wherever I've been has been really, really helpful, kind of keeping me on the writing path as well.
0: That's so funny because, I mean, I would say I know only a handful of writers that actually write Mm full-time. And so almost everyone has another career. Yeah, exactly. But yet there's this sense that you're cheating on, you know, like, you're in a tooth, a tooth. And, I, and I don't know. And I also would think that as a doctor, they, that sometimes they would be sort of like, I mean, I think maybe lawyers are like this too, like, because I guess lawyers, it's all about billable hours. Mm. So if you're doing anything else, I think that they might go like, uh, mm. so you could be working for, I don't know. I feel like some professions do yeah. better with writing than others, but.
2: I think medicine is actually one that, Is very complimentary, and there's a long history of physician writers or physician artists. And really, only in the past hundred years of Western biomedicine have we gotten away from the idea that physicians should be well rounded people who understand art as well as they understand science. Mm. And so, not to get super nerdy about medical history, but if you look back in time, you know, a lot of people who were. Um, some of our forefathers of medicine because there weren't women in medicine back then um, were people who also wrote poetry or were artists. And starting around the early 1900s, this guy named Dr. Flexner wrote what's called the Flexner report. And basically he said, okay, medical education is super disorganized. We need to start standardizing what we do and everyone has to learn science. And here's the science you need to learn. And that sort of took away the humanities aspect of medicine. Mm. And for the past hundred or so years, medical education has been remarkably similar in terms of the prerequisites and um, the requirements once you get to medical school. And in the past 10 to 20 years, we're starting to see a renaissance, I think, um, of folks who are recognizing you need to know more than just science to be a good physician because being a doctor is about a human connection. And so you have to be able to connect with people and understand where they're coming from. And I don't have to explain to you all as writers why literature and art are so important to help us do that. And so I think we are seeing the kind of rebirth of an interest in narrative medicine and using the arts Mm -hmm. and medical training um, because people realize that it also helps physicians too not get burned out and helps them, helps us to kind of figure out, um, you know, what are we doing here and what is the right thing to do in ethically difficult situations um, or situations where we
1: feel powerless. And so I think it can be really helpful in both directions. Wow, that is just, it's so encouraging to hear that this is coming back.
0: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And
1: yeah, well, that's beautiful.
0: Um, I was going to say there was that there was that study and they said reading novels made you more empathetic.
1: Mm-hmm. And, I,
0: and I think it's because you're seeing a whole different point of view yeah and you're really invested in that point of view because you're they're leading you through the story true. often, and you write, and so you're mm-hmm. or or multiple points of view, and the ability to say, "Oh, this story isn't just one story
1: or this person mm-hmm. isn't like me at all. Mm-hmm. But Irene, I want to ask you, what is it about poetry in particular?
2: Well, first of all, it's logistical, so poems are much shorter than prose works generally, and so being very busy in medical education and residency. Um, uh, it was just easier for me to commit to writing a page or two rather than writing rather than writing um, an entire novel or short story. But I think there's also something about the way that language is used in poetry that's usually different from how language is used in prose. I think in prose, often the emphasis is primarily on the content. You, the author or the writer is trying to say something specific, and the way they craft sentences or the way they structure a story is to convey a particular message. And in poetry, the language and the the oral and oral experience of the language is just as important as the content, and sometimes more important actually. And so, the language itself becomes this medium that you can experiment with, and you can you can change the way that it looks on the page, or you can change the way words are used, or create these um, multiple layers of meaning that I think is not done as often in prose. I don't want to say. People who write prose never do this. But I think part of the point of poetry is to have that kind of experimentation with language. And so for me, that's really fun because I am a creative person um, by nature and I love being creative. And I think sometimes in medicine, you don't always have the space to be creative. In some ways you do. I mean, you have to figure out how you're going to convince a four-year-old to let you look in their ears and things <laughs> like that. But in terms of um, you know, the treatment... It's very protocolized. We know what works. Here's what you're going to do. Here's the antibiotic you're going to take. Done. There's not a whole lot of creative thinking. Right. (laughs) right. Um, At least in the kind of medicine that I practice. So um, having the opportunity to do those kind of experiments and have it be totally inconsequential to anyone's life or health (laughs) was a really fun outlet to have to complement the medicine.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was also thinking it's just um, more portable. Like Mm -hmm. you don't have to carry a whole novel around. Like Mm -hmm. if you've got a little break. In your day, mm-hmm. yeah, you could write, you can do it in, start in a something. notebook. But I, I'm interested in, I want to talk more about how you lay your poems out on the page mm-hmm. because you do make such good use of the space of a page,
0: right? And I think that I was gonna sort of also ask you in, in that context, um, to maybe talk about the book that came out in 2019, Grand Marinage, and maybe read from it.
1: And, and yeah. tell us a
0: little bit about the poem that you picked, sort of why it fits into the collection. Because I sort of had—I gave you your little homework <laughs> assignment: was <laughs> pick something that feels like a kind of—it's um, uh, a great example. Mm-hmm. From the book, like if you had to sort of say, "Oh, we get to pick one poem out of this," you know. I always hate. I always hate that we always like people are like, "Sum up your book," and you're like, "I wrote a book. Read the book,
2: and like, tell us in a hundred
0: <laughs> words what you just wrote." I, but just read this. <laughs> so anyway, I know it's a loaded question, but that, that was that's sort of. Uh, I'd love for you to read something and also just talk about, sure, a little bit either before, or after, why.
2: Okay, well, I'll talk a little bit about the book first. So, Grand Marinage is an historical term, and Basically, it refers to um, during periods of enslavement when enslaved people would escape from society, often in um, conjunction with indigenous people, and they would run away from kind of whatever main city or plantation and form these communities, often in very inhospitable areas. So in the American South, that was often in the swamplands um, and throughout the Carolinas and Georgia and Louisiana. In parts of Latin America and the Caribbean, often it was mountainous areas, but basically very um difficult territories to live on for a lot of reasons. So Petite marinage is when people would leave for brief periods of time and then for various reasons would would return. And Grand Marinage is when they would leave and completely set up these free societies which often existed for generations and descendants of those societies live in some of these areas to this day. And so I chose this title as a metaphor because I was really thinking about um, ideas around liberation and what it looks like to become more free with each generation Mm -hmm. Um, both in terms of race as well as in terms of gender and class, given that we do live in a very racialized, classed um, society. And I was using this metaphor to think through particularly the women in my family, um, largely resting on my paternal grandmother's stories, but multiple women in my family um, and how our experiences have changed over time and how we have hopefully become more liberated in some ways, um, but also still operate within the constraints of a racialized capitalist patriarchy. So the way that I use space on the page is really indicative of one of the themes I was trying to get at, which is thinking about silences and kind of the stories that we tell about our families and the stories that we, on a macroscopic level, tell and pass along about our nation and how those stories shape the way we think about ourselves. And so I was really interested not only in the stories that I've heard about my family, but also in the silences and the stories that are not told. Mm. Um, Either because people choose not to tell them or because the information is unknown for various reasons or considered unimportant. And to me, that was almost more interesting than what was being said. Um, And kind of Mm. what is that hidden agenda in the narrative that's passed down. So I really try to think about the white space on the page as an opportunity to highlight silences and to give the reader some space to imagine their own conclusion to something that i actually didn't know the answer to so that was um a lot of what i was thinking
1: about and crafting the layout of these poems i wanted i wanted to ask you about how so sometimes you have text running um like at a different angle even mm-hmm. so it's there's space and then they're also yeah tipping words mm-hmm. literally tipping them Yeah,
2: so you're referring to um, a poem I wrote called uh, Self-Portrait as a Series of zoning Laws, and that poem is, that's a poem where I actually had the image of the form in my head before I knew what it was going to say, and I really wanted the poem to look like um, the aerial layout of a plot of land, and so I imagine those words on the side as almost fences and the words on the inside as maybe like a house or a shed or different parts of a property and land. So cool. Because I was thinking about these issues of ownership and land and who has rights to <laughs> land and <laughs> what that history looks like um, and how our identities inform our relationships to, to the land in the United States in particular. So that's why that's how that home happened. Love that. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Okay, but
2: we do want to hear what I questions? Uh, just kick my shins. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read this poem called My Mother Teaches Me Self Preservation. At the grocery store, the baggers sharp white smile, his have a nice day, which my mother met tight lipped, letting slip only a nod. In the car I called her mean. She turned to me, her face open, pulse of arterial anger. He doesn't care if I have a nice day or not. Not really. My mother names each of her father's sins, counts them like slick pearls beaded around all their necks. Each of her siblings' oysters trying to make orbs of sky between shell, smooth flesh. And now, I don't know whether they are teeth or pearly bullets strung on a man's jaw, and I don't mind being called mean. My mother says, with the same hand you shuck an oyster or split garlic from its skin, cup olive oil into your hair. Let the sweat fasten it in, wash and wake up shining, this being only for you. You don't ever have to smile. My mother has a line of sad, nice women behind her to thank for this wisdom. When to open... When to close, when to let my hair down, who's nice to trust? Oh, mother, bless those women, and bless what you loved and had to leave behind to slip away, your face still your own, your vessels behind it still smooth.
0: Thank you. I, it, there was so many things going through my head, but it, one of the interesting things was um, the empowering of women to not... Feel that they have to respond, Mm -hmm. and um, and it was a um, it was a um, self defense workshop that I took, and it was very interesting because it went from the very fundamentals. It was like we can feel very guilty when someone wants to engage with us, Mm -hmm. and you can say no. Right, I do not feel like telling you what time it is. Yeah. I don't feel like saying hello to you,
1: Um, and that kind of goes against a lot of our training (laughs) to be like try to be nice. And we still, I I think, even those of us who are have had the opportunity to be self-critical about that or think about it and and embrace alternatives, still slip into those. I think about just last week I was had an opportunity to do some writing out of town and in the morning I stayed up at breakfast and there was breakfast and I sat down with my notebook in the morning and a man came round with breakfast and asked if he could join me. And I thought, you know, if I, if I had, had my wits about me, I would have said, you know, I'm sure, you're a wonderful person, but I'm here to work on some writing. But instead, my knee jerk reaction was, Oh, of Why, course, sure. <laughs> and then he proceeded to tell me all about his writing, <laughs> <laughs> and I sat quietly with my laryngitis, by the way, and then I excused myself from a place that I had wanted to spend more time working. Mm-hmm. But anyway. I don't know, but but this is, the the topic is a rich one, but then Mm -hmm. the way that you delivered it is so beautiful. And you, um, I'm wondering about your use of sound. So there are rhymes or there are, um, sounds that play sort of through the poem. Mm -hmm. Do you think about that? Like, how how do you, how do you make your magic? (laughs) Well, first of all, I want to
2: say that, um, that whole phenomenon that you are talking about and feeling pressure to respond to men is something that I think a lot of people can relate to. But I also think that there are situations where of course, safety wise, we feel like the best thing is to just respond and kind of go along with it to get out of the situation. Because yeah. unfortunately there are still women who are killed for not saying hello back yeah. or for yeah. re- rejecting a man's advances. So mm-hmm. that's okay. If, if that is what you have to do to protect yourself. But um mm-hmm. I don't really think um, consciously about sound. I think it's more intuitive, and when I'm kind of in the poetry writing part of my brain, um, I think there's just something that turns on in the way that I think about language. So I don't really know the formula. Do, <laughs> That's so uh, cool, though.
0: Uh, do you read it aloud as part of your process?
2: Usually at the end. I don't usually write read aloud when I'm in the process of writing a poem. But when I write poems, I frequently don't edit them very much. So there, it's often that some idea or memory or set of images is kind of percolating in the back of my brain, kind of on the back burner, simmering on low. And then when the time is right, I just decide, okay, this is now when I'm going to write this. And it just sort of comes out. And so I would say probably the majority of my poems, I end up maybe changing a word here and there. But the, the main structure of the poem and the main um, the rest of the poem remains throughout the revision process and then there are in a minority of cases there are some poems that I really substantially overhaul but I think part of my writing process is to always subconsciously be thinking about yeah. things and kind of the language that I want to use to put something into words so by the time I write it it comes out not quite fully formed but pretty close yeah. I-, I went
0: through um a number of years where I only wrote poetry and I mm. and I had and it was one of those things where you're supposed to be doing something else. I was supposed to be writing screenplays, but instead um, I kept mm-hmm. having poems come into my head. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what was really interesting was um, it, I lived in D.C. at the time, and it was during my walk was when poems would come into my head. Mm-hmm. And I think it was very much about sort of like the rhythm. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think their poems are very much affected by sort of where you were and how you're moving through the space mm-hmm. and how you're thinking about things. But I think that there's a lot, there's a tendency of a lot of writers who say, Oh, I didn't sit staring at my computer for two hours, so therefore I'm a very bad writer and mm-hmm. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Um, and, and I've had wonderful advice from people who say, Keep your work with you all the time. Mm-hmm. And in those moments of riding the bus or whatever you're doing, that you then think about them and right. you can work through a lot of you can work through a lot of stuff through it right. you know what I mean or open yourself your mind up having that space that's when a lot of creative ideas come into your head where you're not thinking okay what's the grocery store list mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, yeah. or whatever uh, this sort of mundane stuff if you allow your your creative brain.
2: yeah and I think the best poems are the ones where I don't know what I'm writing about at first, but I just start writing. And it's kind of when I switch into that poetry mode in my brain That and so, if anything, I often will end up deleting the first few lines, which are just me figuring out what the heck is going on here. And I'm writing a poem. What is this about? (laughs) Some (laughs) interesting images. Oh, oh, this is happening. Uh And now we're going back to childhood. And now this metaphor. And that guy I saw last week. Okay, now it makes sense. Yeah, and that's (laughs) what I thought of it. And then it resonated. And that changed
0: my perspective. Um, I had a weird experience too with. uh, Have you ever kept a dream journal? Actually, I have not. But I do have a lot of weird dreams. Yeah. So, um, I would encourage you, your next weird dream, to write it down. Okay. And this is why I'm going to tell you to do this, because, um, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not always very good about it now, but I used to be better about it. hmm And if you go back a year or so later, your weird dream makes total sense. Huh. So I'm going to not ask you soon. in a year, if, once you've done this. Okay. If this worked for you. <laughs> but, um... But it also, if you, I think there's certain things you can take with a dream, and you can sort of make some assumptions. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know how much um, younger Freud they made you study in medical <laughs> school, but that um, if you take certain things, where you're like death is about change, mm-hmm. like you know and that kind of stuff. Then mm-hmm. you can start seeing stuff. But I would have these. I had, I had, a, I would weird adventure dreams. I had weird movie-like dreams. Mm-hmm. Strange, how strange. I'm a, I'm a filmmaker, but I'd have weird like movie dreams where it'd be like I have to rescue my brother from you know, a concentration camp or something.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. When but I was, then later when you read about it, you're yeah. like, you
0: read the, you read your dream, not in that moment. You're like, oh, I was working out this thing about having to take care of my brother.
2: Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I had this recurring sort of theme of of having to escape from something. And it was usually with my family. And it was usually some really catastrophic event, like a flood or a tornado or a terrorism attack or like, Slavery, like it would be some horrible catastrophic thing, and we'd be like fleeing for our lives. And I still remember a lot of those because they were so like, terrifying, stressful. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> up, like totally afraid. of like, yeah. Okay, okay, it's not a tornado. It's okay, right. everyone's safe. Yeah. Um And so it's interesting. I mean, I haven't had one of those in a while, and for I think very occasionally a friend or something other or another, something is also in them, but it usually would just be my immediate family, and we're like running away from. some mortal situation. So, yeah, but it is interesting. Actually, one of the poems in this book is based on a dream that was very clear. And when I woke up, I was like, that is weird and very much like a bizarre modern-day Greek myth. And the person in the dream had a specific name, Dionocles. And I was like, who is Dionocles? I don't think that's a real... (laughs) mythical person, but I'm going to write Sounds it down. Good, <laughs> it could have lived in Greece. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, clearly this very metaphorical thing that was happening. And I, and so when I woke up from that dream, I did write it down and it did become one of the poems. Um, so occasionally I, I do, or occasionally I, I think I have lines of poems come to me in dreams. I'm like, Oh, this is something I need to write down, but I don't do it as a normal practice.
1: Sounds like a writer's way as Iran you were talking about um, earlier, of processing the experiences you're having mm-hmm. is using words yeah. um, so whether that's yeah in journal or
0: if we were a different kind, kind of artist we would be drawing or something yeah
1: yeah, yeah maybe so yeah yeah or yeah. that that's just one kind of form that the writing takes but then there yeah mm-hmm. it and indicates that words help words are imperative the use mm-hmm. of them to you yeah and
0: you were raised in a family of doctors. is that? Mm-hmm. What do they think about your poetry? Do they have their own creative outlets or do they?
2: Yeah, so um, I come from a family that is very interested in the arts and literature. So my parents are both physicians and I have a lot of extended family members who are physicians. But my dad loves music. He was consistent that my sister and I play piano and that my brother pick an instrument as well. So we all had to take music lessons. Um, my mom loves reading. She loves reading a good novel. Um, so they're very into the arts and they raised us with a lot of exposure to different arts events in the community, actually here in Charlottesville for much of my childhood. Um, so they were always very supportive, but I think they also couldn't really conceive of what it means to be a writer Period. I mean, I think they had some idea that usually you end up being a teacher or a professor of some sort, maybe. But I think they had a lot of assumptions about, and to some extent, some of what they were concerned about was valid, but I think they had a lot of concerns around the precarity of those types of careers. And I think we're... Um, operating on what they called the brainwashing of their parents that, you know, you got to become a doctor, lawyer, or dentist, like, pick your thing so you can go and, like, have your skills that you do and for... And feed your family. Right. And And so they weren't quite as um, insistent as, I think, their parents were to them, but I could tell that the idea of being an artist, period, was very disconcerting to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're like, well, just make sure you get paid (laughs) and, like, live somewhere. Um, So...
0: And not at home. Right. And so they, they never said you have to
2: be a doctor, but I think they made it clear you have to do something that is going to help you support yourself, obviously. And so um, when I decided to become a doctor, which was much later, towards the end of college, I was very resistant to that for a long time because I think that I sensed the subliminal messaging of it and kind of just the pressure of having many family members who are physicians. Um But when I came around to it, you know, my parents always said, but don't leave your writing behind. Like, you can do both. You don't Mm, have to pick one or the other. And actually, before I even wanted to be a doctor, my dad would say, well, William Carlos Williams was a pediatrician Uh and a poet. And I was like, yeah, but I don't want to be a pediatrician, Dad. I just want to be a poet. And (laughs) And here she is. And here I am. Um, He's not
0: a bad role model if
2: you have to pick one. Right,
0: exactly. (laughs) Um, what What do they think about you sort of delving into family history is mm-hmm. that is that i, I mean I, this is something i would actually probably also ask someone who's writing
1: no more, um, memoir memoir but, yeah. but i mean i but feel you're like bringing very, family into this yeah. i feel
0: like it's very personal i mean obviously mm-hmm. there are certain things that feel more um uh universal almost mm-hmm. on their personalness but i mean i i don't know your i mean i didn't grow up with you so i don't know the things that maybe your family would be like you're talking about
2: that yeah mm-hmm. It was a little bit scary writing some of this at first. And many of the poems, not all of them, but a lot of them where my specific family members make very obvious appearances. I did share the poem with them in one way or another. Um, to, get, to get sort of a little. Yes, yeah, to see what the reaction was, see if they were like, what? You're going to publish that? Um, actually, I read the poem that I just read with you all. I read it to my mom um, when I first wrote it. Mm. And she goes, whoa that was really poetic. You're like a poet. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, that's the idea here. <laughs> you were going to
0: say, but she said, you thought it was mean?
2: <laughs> oh, no, she knew I thought that. I about it. On she, the
0: was, spot.
2: Yeah. she was just clearly really, um, I think, shocked at how I had kind of put together these different things. And mm. maybe I don't even know if she realized the message she was trying to send me. And so you could just sort of see the gears turning in her head, and she was like, "Whoa, you really kind of like actually took do, that to another level." Little... <laughs> Listen to that. what I said, yeah, exactly. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so fascinating. Well, but, I mean, I feel like parents look at you and always think you're a kid, also. Mm-hmm. Like, I imagine they would have a similar experience if they saw you actually with a patient. Mm-hmm. They'd be like well, you really did become right. a doctor. I mean, I know we paid a lot of but like, it, it seemed to take. <laughs> well done. And you're like, I'm not in third so grade anymore.
2: <laughs> I think the, um, the biggest concern I had was so many of the stories were based on things my grandmother told me, and that was the blessing I really wanted because there are some poetic liberties taken, and again, that was because of me reading between the lines. My grandmother is a very proper person, and so whenever I would ask her about conflict or negativity or anything not happy hunky dory, she would just kind of gloss over it or give me some aphorism and just be like, well, life isn't perfect or I'd be like, Grandma, that's not an answer. Like what really happened? <laughs> yeah, to you? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I did take some poetic license in telling those stories. And so after I finished the manuscript, I printed it out and I gave her a copy and I was like, let me know what you think. This is the book I've been working on. And I've been interviewing her informally on the phone for about a year, just taking notes and telling her every time Mm. I'm writing this book, grandma, I'm going to use some of these stories. And so she called me one day and I was actually in clinic. So I didn't get the call until I walked out of clinic. And I thought that's kind of weird. She doesn't usually call me during the middle of the day. So I called her back and she was so excited. She said, Iran, I just finished your book. And it was so wonderful. I loved it. And I was like, oh, thanks, grandma. And then she called my parents that night and she said, you know, I, I think I was reading about myself. And I was like, yeah, it that, that is. She didn't, is. She didn't exactly. actually recognize all the stories
0: that she told. Well, she, I
2: guess she did, but maybe she didn't, um, it didn't like hit home that I was actually going to write them down. Oh. She was like, yeah, you have to be careful what I say around her. She's oh. a writer. write it down. <laughs> oh, and so wow. then I said, okay, well, is there anything you want me to change? Is there anything that you think is not how you want to be represented? That's very and she said, It's your book. You can do what you want. It's very nice. And I was like, all right, Uh, grandma said it's okay. So everyone else can just mind their business because she's the oldest person in the family. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) The blessing. Well,
0: I think that's a really, I think that's a, I think a lot of people sort of hesitate to write about family in a specific way just because they're afraid, you know, like Mm -hmm. they want
2: to still go home for Christmas or Mm -hmm. whatever. And I think it's a little bit, harder with memoir because in memoir you're purporting to tell the quote unquote truth. Um, And with poetry, I think there's this general understanding that poetry is basically fiction. And so people, there are all these memes on Twitter where people will say like me versus the speaker of my poem. And it's like two things. It's like the stuffed animal version of a dog and a real dog. It's like two things that are clearly the same thing, but slightly different versions.
1: (laughs) um, And like not every
2: speaker is the poet, but I think, a lot of people will make that assumption. However, if you're really reading poetry, um, I don't want to say the way that you're supposed to, but if you're really reading poetry, maybe generously, you would never make the assumption that this whatever that person wrote is exactly what their life experience has been.
1: Yes. Or
0: understanding that the narrator isn't always a person. Exactly, yeah. And I think that that's, um, you know, that's really
1: important.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That you, you might be, you know, writing, you know, you're writing one poem from your grandmother's point of view. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, it's filtered through you and you're poet, you are the poet, but you need to sort of go, we need to all make that leap, like reading yeah. about, you know, a book, you know, and the person is not you. And that's always the question that's really interesting fiction. They're like, well, this well is how a much huge... of you is in this narrator? Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. like, well, I. Like, created them yeah <laughs> so clearly yeah. some
1: yeah yeah but, but this is a huge issue right now um in i uh, well one side of it and that is you know how dare uh, a person write a story about someone who is very different from them mm-hmm. you know this has become a hugely controversial right um
0: Right, we, we all went to Roxane Gay this week. She was here mm-hmm. in Charlottesville, and yep. she was talking about that. Um, and I, But I think some of the outrage is really about the fact that it's more acceptable, and publishers, and being more acceptable, I mean, and publishers will give certain people lots of mm-hmm. money to have a white writer write about the experience
1: whatever of a do. group mm-hmm. than
0: yep. giving this money to actually incredibly talented yes. Latino writers. To to write their own mm-hmm. story, and yes. they'll say, "Well, there's not really a market for it, or we can't find readers for it," mm-hmm. which is like <laughs> preposterous. But, but the whole thing is, you just said you're gonna pay five hundred thousand dollars for this other one about the same subject.
1: Mm-hmm. So I, I, think, a, I don't know. It's a it's a huge topic. I mean, it's yeah. multi sided. Right. But I think you know another side of it is that. The act uh, the creative act presumes um well we we talked about how reading is it can be an empathetic exercise where you inhabit the experience of someone who is not you Mm -hmm. um i think creativity is doing that as well it can be doing that yeah it's it the devil's in the details how is it done to what end all of that but I just wrote as kind of an experiment, uh, uh, chunks of a draft for a short story, in which my protagonist, and this is told in the first person, is a man who is um, who does fracking for a living. This is somebody utterly unlike myself. Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of wanted to feel, get in that skin a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then the, the story's circumstances dictate some of what that looks like. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it makes me uncomfortable. I'm not sure that I ever want to publish it, partly mm-hmm. for that reason. Somebody could say, well... I am a man who's fracks and mm-hmm. that's not at all like me or my my friends I don't know if do. a man
0: who fracks would read your book,
1: I'm not. You never know. But, I could be
0: wrong. I could be totally and I'm making many I assumptions. Do, <laughs> what I wanted to
1: do was see if I could um, inhabit again the sort of mind and possible experience of somebody very unlike myself, and with whom I might disagree.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, it's a it was an interesting exercise, if nothing else. But uh,
0: right, yeah. and I think it's a, yeah, I think there is a question. Can um, we both have the need for more characters who are not white, right, or straight or whatever? But are we are we able to write those, you know, Mm -hmm. if you if you say like I'm a heterosexual person, so I'm going to but I'm going to write this because it sells a YA about, you know, gender questioning, you know, like, Mm -hmm. is that okay for me to do that?
1: Well, that's the huge question right now. Well, yeah.
0: Because I do feel that there's, there should be way more books available for kids mm-hmm. so that they could, that maybe one of them would go to their library or whatever and find this book and say, oh, I'm not all by myself, you yes. know, because there's such an incident of suicide. But I don't know if I'm the right person to
1: write that. Yeah. And that's where I think the devil's in the details. Right. Um, so, but somebody who isn't maybe gender fluid could maybe and and it be good uh, and it be valuable to the reader that you described you know a gender fluid kid who who does feel and see themselves in it in ways that are Mm -hmm. empowering or um yeah
2: well I think it's about doing your due diligence right that's why we have sensitivity readers there are people that you can pay as consultants to read and see does this book reflect the experiences of the people that I'm trying to write about, or is it totally missing the mark? Which I yes, think was some point. of the current the issue with the so current. Do you think debate.
0: she didn't do sensitivity training with American Dirt.
2: <laughs> well, I haven't read it, so I, I don't know. But from <laughs> the reactions either. of many Latinx writers on the internet, it seems that many people' um, negative response is partly about the attention and the differential um, sort of valuing of who's writing what, but also the inaccuracies of the way that, um, characters are portrayed and the way that language is used. And so, I mean, for example, I, um, just wrote a YA book, which I'm still trying to find an agent for, but the main character has um, sickle cell anemia. Mm -hmm. I don't have sickle cell anemia. I have taken care of patients who have sickle cell anemia, but I do not know what it's like to have it. And sort of coincidentally, I met a young writer who's a teenager who has sickle cell anemia and is a fantastic writer, and I said, "Hey, if I pay you as a sensitivity writer, will you read this book over the summer and tell me if it resonates with you or if I'm totally missing the mark here?" And she gave me some really great feedback, and it was a cool summer job for her. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I think that if you're going to write about something that's not your experience, you have to put in the research. And I know that that author did do her own research. I'm not sure what it consisted of, but. It's it's a risk. If I mean, and you can do all the research in the world, but you still may be wrong. You still may get it wrong, and that's a risk you take. What was interesting is that she, the quotes that I've read have said that she um, is aware that she took a risk,
0: Mm -hmm. and at times questioned whether she should be the person to write it. Um, But I do, I do wonder. It it does it does make me sad because I do wonder. Like I'm, you know, we all. I feel like we all have that potential to write such different people mm-hmm. from ourselves and that's yes. a valuable thing but the question is are we what is the what is the limited resources that is causing people to this anxiety mm-hmm. you know like if, are point. we only publishing five ya books about gender questioning teenagers and then i'm going to take one of those spaces
2: mm-hmm. and well, maybe
0: like, mine doesn't
2: resonate part of it is a publishing have... industry problem right mm-hmm. there isn't there is this scarcity illusion that does not really exist. We can have mm-hmm. all of the books written yes. by all of the people. There's not a <laughs> limit of how many we can have, but there is this message that we keep getting like, oh, well, there's no market for this, or certain people don't want to read that. And I do like what you said. I think there's um, there's a difference between writing something as an interesting exercise that expands your own mind and actually publishing it, and that's right. another leap. But I also think that for those of us who have any sort of privilege or pull or... Um, kind of name for ourselves, part of our job as literary citizens is to make a space and make a platform for other people who could tell different stories better than we could tell them. Mm. And I feel like that's um, kind of an ego battle that we all have to duke out in our own minds of, do I need to be the person to tell the story? And just because I can, should I? Do I need to? Could somebody else do it better? And maybe there's something else I need to say. Because any one of us could write any right. lots of stories. We're all wonderful writers. But I think whether or not you choose to write a certain thing and how is kind of a personal question for yourself. And I think the the other side of that question is who am I bringing along with me and who am I making space for or not making space for in right. my need to publish and tell my own stories. Right. And I think, that, I, don't know I mean, talk. the thing is that as much as we like to pretend this isn't the case because it's 2020, we still live in this culture that is dominated by white supremacy. Yeah. And so there's this idea that like, white people are the default humans so if you're going to put any other flavor of human then they have a side role a little or they're, makeup. they're just <laughs> they're just their own identity they don't have a yeah. creative ability or an identity that can be like thought of in other ways and so I think that the, mm-hmm. the problem is just still white supremacy it's yeah. in publishing it's in Hollywood it's in all of these industries and so until we kind of name that and work through that mm-hmm. um I think we're going to continue to see problems like this so,
0: well,
1: we could probably talk to you for all day. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, um, and on these topics, I mean, oh, they're so rich. But, oh, Iran, what a gift, uh, this book, and I'm eager to look at. So, and I, um,
0: and I will link to your website on our podcast page well thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your work with yes what a joy on this gorgeous day we'll try to get out and have a little sunshine (laughs) that's right (laughs) before it gets all gray again um but thank you so much thanks for having me it's been really fun thank you
1: oh my gosh i just love talking with iren machu what a pleasure and um God, we could have gone on for a long time. We did go along uh, for
0: a really long time, (laughs) but we could have gone even further. I think um, just so fascinating to hear about how she is juggling, you know, two careers that are both dear to her heart, and um, and you know, just getting a little glimpse of how they work together for her.
1: Yes, and some of those poetic techniques, um, yeah, really thought-provoking process
0: as well. I always enjoy hearing. People.
1: yeah find that so so stay tuned huh we'll have to keep yep. uh keep up with her yeah I read, the novel, i'm sure she'll, she'll have poetry yeah, she's got another book that
0: hopefully will find a home soon yeah and um and she's also going to be at the festival of the book um uh, on several panels uh so yeah many, so many folks of our, are in any, charlottesville yes exactly we have quite a few of our podcast guests
1: <laughs> yes coming at the festival of the <laughs> it's a big festival it is a big festival so um, yeah if you're in the area folks out there come join us in charlottesville in
0: march exactly that's right
1: and if you want to learn more about iran Mathieu, there will be a link there is a link here and her website has some good info too yeah so, so thank you all right
0: see you in february